So hi, this is Zane Horowitz with the Oregon Poison Center Journal Club for June 2008, and today we're talking about alcohol kinetics, metabolism, and forensics with it. We'll take you beyond alcohol metabolism 101 up to 201 and 301, talk about some metabolic products you didn't know existed probably before today. So I'm going to start off and look at a uh, sort of a classic paper at this date, it's almost 20 years old. Um, by Howard Gershom and Jennifer Steeper uh, called The Rate of Clearance of Ethanol from Blood of Intoxicated Patients in the Emergency Department, so somewhat relevant to what we see. And, you know, they noted, um, you know, in their um, discussion that, you know, there's rates that are listed all over the map, although most of them are between the teens and the 20s for the milligrams per deciliter per hour, but there are some that are as high as 50, and there are some that uh, talk about the possible differences of the acutely intoxicated and the chronic alcoholic uh, patients. So basically, the study was done at um, it's like Cleveland uh, Medical Center, Department of Emergency Medicine, Mount Sinai, and they took all patients that presented between October 86 and July 87 during the shifts when one of the two authors were on, and it, it implies perhaps several other colleagues that were willing to do the work of getting these patients. They excluded patients whose initial blood alcohol level wasn't particularly high at <coughs> 70. They also excluded those where they weren't able to get three accurately timed blood samples to do uh, some math on the uh, clearance rate. They excluded patients who were pretty sick, the major trauma patients and major medical problems, so it can't be generalized to those. They also, if the patient wasn't cooperative, they didn't have an IV, they got discharged prematurely, or um, they got rid of all those. And um, samples that were uh, obtained before optimal absorption, we'll talk about those couple of cases, were ultimately thrown out as well. And at the same time, they got, sounds like a complete liver panel and an amylase, and looked to see if any of the liver dysfunction issues changed the clearance rates. And then it's simple math. It's ethanol level 1 minus ethanol level 2 divided by the amount of time it took to clear those, and they did that for each of the different uh, levels they got. So they ended up with 150 patients who were started or considered for the study. Uh, a couple were excluded because uh, the second alcohol level was higher than the initial one, and they seemed to imply that maybe they had really drank a lot before they got to the ER. And they threw out one or two other patients for a variety of those reasons we talked about, leaving them with 103 patients that satisfied all their entry criteria. Um, they were mostly an inner-city ER. The mean age was 41. 90% uh, of the patients were black, 10% were white. 79% um, of the patients were male, um, and most of them had assigned as either a primary or secondary diagnosis, alcohol intoxication is the main reason they were there. A couple of them, 11%, 11% had seizures or a psychiatric illness. And so they were able to calculate um, a number that I think is often quoted that the mean rate of clearance for this group of 103 patients was 20 0.43 milligrams per deciliter per hour, which a plus or minus uh, standard deviation of about 6.8. Um, so basically a range of the low teens, 13 to 28, would be the range. They saw a range of their total range of 9.7 to 37 uh, milligrams per deciliter per hour. And <coughs> interestingly, their mean serum alcohol level was nearly 300, 299, and the range from 71, because they excluded everyone below 70, up to 500. Then they tried to see if there's any association between uh, transaminases, alkphos, bilirubin, um, and a variety of other factors. And really, the rate of clearance was independent of all these. It didn't correlate with age. It didn't correlate with sex. It didn't correlate with race. It didn't correlate with alkphos. It didn't correlate with transaminases. And so it seemed to be a pretty uniform estimate of how fast someone in the emergency room would clear their alcohol and therefore could probably be used, um, you know, as a number for which how long patients need to be watched until they reach, um, you know, uh, metabolic clearance. So a brief review for um, anyone out there who's listening, but certainly everyone around here I think knows alcohol goes through two enzymatic steps. Um, this is sort of the, the easy version. We're going to get the more complex version in a second here. Alcohol dehydrogenase takes its acetyl aldehyde, and then it's oxidized by aldehyde dehydrogenase to acetate. Acetate ends the Krebs cycle, and both of these two enzymes are uh, linked through NADH metabolism and generate NADH as well. 
and lactic acidosis sometimes as a byproduct. They also mention um, something that's often quoted but may not be all that terribly significant, which is this microsomal ethanol oxidation system, the MEOS system. People have felt that this is a uh, P450 uh, system-like, but not exactly, because it's a membrane-bound um, oxidative system, and it may be inducible with chronic exposure to alcohol in patients who can tolerate high alcohol levels. This system may be revved up, but in general, historically, the feeling was that this really doesn't account for more than 10 to 15 percent of the total oxidative rate. Um, and really, I think that's the main gist <coughs> of this. They talk about other studies that were done in the literature um, in alcoholics and non-alcoholics and test subjects. Um, and the rates varied, but in general, they more or less agreed, except for one or two studies, um, with uh, this population of alcoholic patients who presented with emergency room. Uh, theoretically, they mentioned that the MEOS component could be induced up to two to three-fold and advanced, uh, while in advanced alcohol liver disease, it actually may be um, significantly impaired and, and not be activated at all. So it's hard to assess what, this, what the rate may be in a real chronic alcoholic with liver disease. So there's a couple of letters to the editor that were generated as a result of this study. Um, you know, one of them basically said that, you know, volume resuscitation may have something to do with it. These patients were just um, pretty much laying there and letting their alcohol metabolize. But what happens if you, like, give them IV fluids as if they were bleeding or in shock, or and would that affect the rate? And they mentioned that they did their own little study on 19 uh, volunteers who fasted for six hours, then were given beer, and they generated alcohol levels above uh, 90, and then they were, had a large bore IV, 16-18 gauge line inserted, and that was run wide open rate for 15 minutes to simulate like pre-hospital resuscitation, so to see if that would affect that. And in general, they don't really present great data, but they basically say the pre-hospital and post-infusion ranges were pretty much within the same range. Pre-hydration, their alcohol levels range from 80 to 205. And post-hydration, their alcohol levels range from 77 to 213. Um, and so, and the volume infused varied from, patient, uh, from each of these 19 people with a wide open rate for anywhere from 400 to a liter and a half. So in general, um, it didn't really answer the question I think they were trying to do, is was if you give more fluid, will the alcohol level drop faster? So they really need sort of a range across what happens each individual <coughs> patient rather than just the mean for this population. Um, and uh, the authors go back and they comment on that uh, study and felt that the volume of distribution would be little affected by a liter and a half of fluid because a 70 kilo man would have a blood volume of 5.5 liters. However, the volume of distribution is pretty much where water goes, and there's originally 42 liters of free water in each of us who weighs 70 kilos. So for an example, a patient who was dehydrated and had a free water deficit of 2 liters would therefore only have a total <coughs> body of water content of 40 liters instead of 42 liters, which would really only be 95% of normal. And if you had a blood alcohol level of 200, that would be decreased to only 190. So it wouldn't really dramatically affect it if you repleted the volume. Um, however, they do say that in their study, um, some patients did receive IV fluids, some patients didn't. In general, they only got about 250 cc's of blood. Mm -hmm. So their clearance rate, they're standing by with minimal volume resuscitation as being um, 20 uh, milligrams per deciliter per hour, which basically, you know, for each 100, you need about five hours to pretty much go away. So when some of our patients come in and their alcohols are 300, idealistically, if you were to believe this study, you'll need about 15 hours for them to be zero. Now, whether or not someone really needs to be at zero is debatable, but um, um, that is the number that's pretty much a linear kinetics um, that's followed, and this inducible rate may or may not be there because they didn't study that. But we're going to look a little further and talk about some other issues with metabolism, whether there's gender differences and whether or not we can find out if someone's been drinking <coughs> long after the alcohol is gone. So let's talk about the gender differences. Is, is there a difference between um, men and women? And I wanted to, I tried to do this last night. I was going to rent the original Indiana Jones movie where uh, Karen Allen is trying to drink those Cossacks <laughs> under the table 
before yeah. this, but I was I wasn't able to find it. If there was a run in that at the Fantastic video store, scene. but uh, anyway, here is um, Rob Hendrickson. Uh, Rob Hendrickson, and the article I'm going to discuss is uh, entitled "Gender Differences in Pharmacokinetics of Alcohol." It was in Alcoholism Clinical and Experimental Research in April of 2001. Your favorite journal? Yes. <laughs> uh, most of us get this one at home. I unfortunately don't, so I have to look in the library. <clears throat> so what um, the background on this paper is that for an equal alcohol intake, women develop higher blood alcohol levels uh, despite a faster rate of ethanol elimination. And this was initially uh, thought to be because women have a uh, smaller volume of alcohol, alcohol distribution uh, than men. Um, however, the gender differences in blood levels are only found with oral intake, and if you give ethanol intravenously, there is no difference. Uh, so it's thought to be that it's the bioavailability or the first-pass metabolism of ethanol that is responsible for these differences. And although there's multiple thoughts and theories as to what the actual cause is, including uh, gastric emptying or ethanol metabolism in the stomach or ethanol metabolism in the liver, this was uh, pretty much not answered, and they were attempting to answer it with this, um, with this study. So uh, in it, there have been previous studies that have showed that there's lower gastric alcohol dehydrogenase activity uh, in women, and that's in particular under the age of 50, and that, that activity um, is, only, uh, is only evident when the alcohol concentration is high. And what, the, what that means is that when the alcohol concentration is very, very high, like found in the stomach, um, that, uh, that may be more of an issue than when the alcohol concentration is actually quite low, uh, like in the liver. Uh, so the ADH is not affected in the liver when uh, the blood alcohol concentration is low. So what they attempted to do uh, was to determine whether gender differences in the bioavailability of imbibed ethanol is due to differences in gastric emptying or to differences in the first-pass metabolism, uh, and to try to determine if that was either in the liver or in the stomach. And so they uh, had IRB approval uh, and gave uh, a dose of 300 milligrams per kilo. Um, so everyone got a per kilo dose of ethanol, and to put that in perspective for a 90 kilo person like myself, that's 27 grams of ethanol, which is about two and a half uh, drinks. Uh, so two and a half shots, two and a half beers. Um, and they were randomly given either oral or intravenous <coughs> ethanol. And it was after a standard fatty meal, <laughs> which <laughs> does not sound very appetizing. And uh, fatty meals, um, meals increase the metabolism of ethanol. And, Lipids, in general, slow the absorption of ethanol. It's a pretty standard way to do a study like this. So, and they gave this uh, in a 5% oral, excuse me, 5% intravenous solution or a 10% oral solution to 22 men and 23 women. And then they uh, also randomly gave to an additional 10 men and 10 women either 5% or 40% solution. And that will be explained a little bit uh, further down. All the patients were, all the study subjects, I should say, were under the age of 50 because kinetics uh, of alcohol changes um, after 50. Uh, and they all uh, had alcohol consumption that was less than 60 grams per week. So they estimated their blood alcohol uh, concentration by using a breathalyzer, and they did so every five minutes, and they started 15 minutes after the ingestion, and they had them wash their mouths with water uh, after ingesting the ethanol. Um, first pass metabolism was quantified by the difference in the amount of uh, blood, uh, excuse me, the amount of alcohol reaching the blood between oral and intravenous doses. <coughs> and then they measured gastric emptying of ethanol by giving uh, eight men and eight women uh, ethanol, uh, but with technetium uh, radio label. And finally, they took an additional group and they performed endoscopic biopsies of their gastric corpus to determine uh, whether there was gender differences in uh, uh, gastric ADH activity. <coughs> so what did they find? Well, 
Alcohol levels were pretty uh, similar after intravenous infusion, no big surprise there. Um, they did find that uh, although they, there was no gender difference in the peak alcohol levels, uh, they both had levels of about 25, which is, um, uh, and they were equivalent. Um, the high ethanol levels persisted longer in women than in men. So that resulted in a 47% greater area under the curve for ethanol. So in other words, they both ingested the ethanol, had the same peak level, but the uh, men's alcohol level dropped quicker. Uh, and of course, the uh, kinetics after intravenous infusion were equivalent between the genders. They found that um, the volume of distribution was, as previously as described, smaller in women, but not uh, very, uh, not very much. It was about eight percent smaller in women than men. And they found that the maximum elimination velocity for uh, women was actually faster. So they actually metabolized the uh, alcohol faster. They uh, first pass metabolism um, was significantly smaller in women than in men, and that was about uh, about half the first pass metabolism in women than was in men. And gastric emptying um, uh, in women was significantly delayed when compared to men, about forty three percent delayed as well. They uh, regarding the gastric biopsies, they found that uh, women had significantly lower ADH activity than men. Uh, and, and that was just in one of the, eight, the three different ADH types of enzymes. And finally, they found that um, gastric emptying decreases and first pass metabolism decreases if you increase the concentration of ethanol. So they gave uh, that small group of men and women 5% solution, which is sort of the equivalent to beer. And then they gave them uh, 40% solution, which is supposed to be the equivalent to whiskey, and they found that the first pass metabolism decreases when you increase the concentration of the alcohol. So beer gets metabolized, has a, uh, has a uh, um, higher first pass metabolism than whiskey or another alcohol. It, it suggests it's sort of enzyme-linked kinetics, it's saturatable and right. it's so fast and so much it can take out. So, um, sort of in conclusion, they found that women differ from men in several different parameters. First, they have a smaller first pass metabolism associated probably with a lower ADH activity. So, um, they are not metabolizing in their stomachs the alcohol like men are. And so, more is making it to the liver and more is making it past the liver to actually make it to the, um, to the blood. They have a decreased volume of distribution, which is related to the uh, altered uh, water to fat ratio in women. And they have enhanced ethanol oxidation in the liver, uh, despite the uh, lower first pass metabolism. And they have a slower rate of gastric emptying as well. So they probably have more uh, alcohol staying in their stomach longer, which gets released slowly, uh, but isn't being metabolized in the stomach, so they actually get a uh, no increase in the early peak of ethanol, but they get a sustained uh, higher level of ethanol. Yeah. So, so as opposed to the other study, which it's again the previous study was ninety percent was ninety was not ninety percent men. It was like seventy percent men. So they used the mean for that, and no one ever went back and said, "Well, is there a real difference between intoxicated men and women who were in the emergency room?" Um, although they seem to say that sex didn't make a difference, so this one really implies that it, there really is some sex differences, a gender difference between them as far as their ADH subtype and their gastric precursor. Um, and it talks about the three subtypes, the, the gamma, the um, well, that's sigma, and the X. I'm not sure what the Greek letter for X is, so chi. Chi, yeah. So it's this third one, the chi alcohol dehydrogenase, this class three isoenzyme. It's found in tissues, and I mean, it's pretty interesting study. They, buy, they got some people to volunteer to get biopsy to assess the uh, the degree of this in their stomach and see how free beer to free beer do they'll do almost anything. Yeah, <laughs> um, and you know, the decreased uh, class three ADH activity is is in women is what causes some of the problem. They don't metabolize it in their stomach. They send it to the liver. In higher amounts, but their liver takes out a little bit more, so it tends to offset it. 
but they seem to remain um, with higher levels of alcohol for a more sustained period of time. So one size does not fit all when you're trying to estimate or guesstimate <coughs> how long someone's going to take to recover. And, and they also seem to imply that perhaps this is why we see some women with advanced cirrhosis at young ages is because they're exposed to this putative toxin, ethanol, or one of its mysterious metabolites that causes the hepatic injury and fatty liver um, for longer periods of time with the same amount of, of drinking. It's not just that their body mass is different or their fatty tissues are different, but it really has to do with some genetic differences in their enzymes in their gut. Can you speak to the zero-work max? Because it's, it's technically, it's told, should be unaffected by substrate concentration? Right. So it should clear you know, at a constant rate. You know, so the rate of decline should be, if we say it's 20, it should be 20. If your rate is 20, your rate is always 20. And if someone else is a little faster, there's a 17, it should always be 17. And no matter how much alcohol you drink or <coughs> what happens to you, it should, the decline should be about the same rate. You know, if you have a big fatty meal, the peak may be delayed or something, as I suggest, but once it gets into your system, the rate of decline should be, should be a fixed rate. whole variety of factors that come into play. So I still think we use some of that uh, 20 milligrams per kilogram per hour as a guesstimate in the ER because we do a lot of rule of thumb stuff, but realizing that there are some differences uh, that may come to play. So now let's turn our attention to a couple of new interesting stuff that's been out in the forensic literature on figuring out who has been drunk after the alcohol's gone away. So a couple of different articles on that. Uh, Nate? So the first article, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm going to talk about uh, is kinetics and serum and urinary excretion of ethyl sulfate and ethyl glucuronide after medium dose ethanol intake. This was a study that uh, just put out in 2008 uh, by Halter et al. Uh, out of Germany. Uh, and as Zane had uh, mentioned, uh, most ethanol actually goes to acetaldehyde and acetic acid, but a very small part actually undergoes non-oxidative uh, transformation. And uh, there are two metabolites. Uh, actually, there are several other metabolites as well, um, but the two probably uh, most common ones that uh, people may have heard of in the past are ethyl gluconuride and ethyl sulfate. Uh, there's also phosphatidylethanol, and uh, there's also some fatty acid uh, esters, uh, which all can be used as markers for alcohol consumption. Uh, in the past, there have been classical markers, uh, carbohydrate-deficient transfer in CDP, uh, glamoglutamyl transferase, and they've also looked at mean corpuscular volume. Uh, so... And those are the longer bar. You know, if someone's drinking for over a course of, you know, not a lifetime, but years, those would be abnormal. Definitely altered. They were actually looking at, yeah, more, more shorter term, but longer term than actually just measuring ethanol itself. Uh, some past studies have shown that ETG, uh, or the ethylglucanuride, uh, has a longer detectability uh, time in the urine than ethanol. Uh, and it has been reported up to 80 hours, actually, in the urine. Um, there's also some question of whether or not ETG uh, is stable uh, post-mortem uh, and actually may not be uh, created uh, once someone dies. And so that can be uh, used uh, in terms of trying to determine uh, post-mortem ethanol concentration. And an interesting uh, topic that really isn't you know, touched uh, more on here, but uh, several other articles have talked about that. Uh, so the reason uh, they did this article or this study was to try to obtain more knowledge about the formation and excretion kinetics of both ETG and ETS in both blood and urine. So they took 13 healthy social drinkers uh, who said they abstained from alcohol for at least a, a week prior to the studies. Uh, they gave two blood samples, just measuring, norm, uh, looking at hemograms. They, they all were normal. They also looked at uh, uh, some liver uh, enzymes, GOT, GPT, GTT, uh, and they were all normal as well. Uh, so then uh, they were asked to consume an amount of alcohol. They did not say what kind, although in Germany I'm assuming it was probably beer, uh, <laughs> to, uh, to give them a blood ethanol concentration of uh, 0.5 to 0.8 grams per kilo, which I believe is 50 to, uh, equivalent to uh, 50 to 80 milligrams per deciliter. 
Uh, and so they, uh, the start of drinking was directly after a standardized breakfast, a roll of jam or honey, caffeine, green tea, or coffee. And drinking took about 30 minutes. Uh, so then what they did is they just measured sequentially uh, obtained uh, blood samples, uh, and then they also obtained uh, urine samples every two hours uh, until uh, 10 hours after the start of drinking. Uh, they then gave them a couple more meals uh, and then sent them all home uh, and actually uh, tested <coughs> the urine uh, for, I'm not sure what the longest time was. I believe it was uh, 72 hours. Yeah. So, uh, and then they kind of go and say, hey, they, they say how they measured and all that kind of stuff. Um, we won't go into that. Um, so basically what they found uh, was that uh, ETG and ETDS uh, was measured in both the uh, blood and in the urine, although it was interesting in one of the serum samples uh, in one of the volunteers, uh, no ETS could be detected, although ETG and ethanol were detectable. Uh, and in that volunteer, ETS was actually detected in the urine, so it really couldn't explain that one. Um, the times that both the ETG and the ETS <coughs> peaked were pretty similar. Uh, ETG serum peaked in about two to three to five hours. ETS about two point one to three point nine, uh, whereas the peak blood alcohol concentrations were somewhere between one point three and two point one hours. Uh, none of that was uh, significant. Uh, in about half, um, the ETS concentration was higher than the ETG. Uh, and then looking at the urine, again, you know, all of them had measurable levels. Uh, the peak uh, was somewhere between 5 to 7 hours uh, for ETS and 3.1 to, 3 to 7.4 for the ETG. Uh, in, in the urine, the ETG was higher than that of the ETS in uh, 12 of the volunteers. Uh, there was one person that kind of his... Um, ETS uh, level went up, went down, and then about <coughs> seven, 42 hours, it started. the ETS level started going back up again. And, well, they thought that he might be drinking again, but he never had elevations in his blood alcohol level or his ETG, so they're not really sure what happened with that one either. Um, so then they tried to look for correlation pairs, peak concentrations of the ETG, ETS, ethanol. Um, the only positive correlations that they found was really when they looked at peak serum concentrations and the reason of the curve, um, something that would be rather difficult to uh, do unless you took serial levels, um, so not really helpful. Um, so uh, the other thing that they, actually no, that was in the other article. Um, so kind of as they, as they expected, you know, they were able to measure both in the blood and the urine. Uh, it did last longer. Uh, in the urine, uh, ETG was detectable for up to 10 times longer than ethanol. ETS was about 3 to 8 times longer. Uh, in the serum, ETS was detectable for about twice as long as ethanol and ETG, uh, even longer. Um, they kind of talk about, also in their discussion, that there may be some polymorphism of some of the enzymes that uh, produce the ETG and the ETS. Uh, so even though, you know, uh, they were able to establish some type of t timeline, uh, it may not be generalizable to uh, the entire population. Uh, and it does appear that there, you know, is some uh, inter-individual differences, uh, particularly in the ETS levels. So, uh, again, you know, they were able to find it. Uh, one of the other things uh, they mentioned was that uh, there may be, you know, some foods that have the ETS uh, or ETG. I know in the other article they actually mentioned that wine actually does contain measurable levels of ETG and ETS, so that kind of also throws maybe might throw a little wrench into everything. But uh, the second article was comparison between the urinary alcohol markers for ETG, ETS, and GTOL slash 5HIAA in a controlled drinking experiment. This was out of Norway, and this was in alcohol, and alcohol was <coughs> uh, also in 2008. 
Uh, and again, you know, the reason uh, for this article was to really compare sensitivities, detection times of ethanol, ETG, ETS, and also another marker that they uh, kind of looked at, and it's a ratio between serotonin metabolites. And it's the 5-HTOL and 5-HIA uh, ratio that uh, they have found that during ethanol metabolism, the metabolism of serotonin is uh, shifted away from 5-HIA to the excuse me, 5-HTOL, which is 5-hydroxytryptophan. Uh, so they, they kind of wanted to look at that one as well. So in this experiment, uh, they took 10 healthy volunteers, uh, and uh, they were all social drinkers. Uh, they also had abstained from about a week prior to the study. Uh, so what they did was that uh, they actually were given ethanol uh, when this... They were given absolute vodka, which, uh, you know, I thought that absolute was Swedish. So, yeah. some of the was done in Stockholm. Yeah. Okay. There you go. So uh, they again measured uh, serum levels, or excuse me, they measured urine levels. I don't believe they measured uh, uh, serum levels at all in this study. Uh, and so they actually uh, measured. Uh, urine collections uh, for about every two hours for the first eight hours and then uh, variable after that. They stayed on site for the first 15 hours and then they collected urine uh, while at home. Uh, they, <coughs> they gave uh, these people a couple different meals as well that were all standardized and they weren't allowed to eat or drink anything else. People do anything for pizza. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so then they, I think they measured uh, the levels pretty much the same way as the uh, other group did too. Uh, so in their results, um, all the urine samples before ingestion of, uh, of ethanol were negative for the ethanol and the GTOL uh, 5-HIA ratio, while one subject had a low concentration of ETG and EPS. Uh, he re reported being abstinent from alcohol during the week part of the study, but admitted to a heavy intake eight days before entering the study. So uh, this... His uh, results may have been a little uh, skewed. Which sort, of, which sort of suggests that these markers may be present as long as seven or eight days later. Because they didn't really get these people that terribly drunk. You know, they just got socially drunk. This guy went on a binge, you know, the weekend before he did the study yeah. in preparation for not being able to drink for a week. Um, he, um, you know, he's still detectable. He's mar which makes it kind of interesting that these markers can actually be useful that long in some cases. Yeah, so and their, their results are pretty much all in uh, Table 1. Uh, the uh, maximum uh, time, their T-max, uh, so their, to the time of their maximum level for ethanol was 2.1 hours. For ETG, it was 5 hours. ETS, it was 4 hours. And for the GTOL, so the 5-HIA ratio was 4. Uh, however, uh, you know, much longer was actually the detection time. For ethanol was only about six hours. For ETG was thirty. ETS was thirty hours, and the GTOL five HIA ratio was only eight <coughs> hours. Uh, so they basically had they and I think one of the other interesting uh, figures was uh, actually Table Two, where they actually had they listed the sensitivity to the frequency of positive positive tests, and as you can see, up to twenty hours. Uh, all of the samples were positive for ETG and ETS, whereas really up to four hours, only ethanol and the GTO, GTOL 5-HIA uh, was detected uh, 100%. So, and again, they kind of showed that uh, you can measure these, uh, and they may be a longer marker uh, for ethanol use. Uh, however, you know, again, these were, you know, single ingestions. So it's kind of hard to say what these levels would do, how long these levels would persist uh, with uh, daily uh, or more frequent drinking. But uh, if you were in an alcohol treatment program or some other uh, uh, program where you needed, you know, the, you had to give urine samples, uh, it certainly could be used as a measure for uh, ethanol use for a longer period of time. Yeah, I think, you know, the, the utility of this is sort of yet to be fully realized, but, you know, there's a lot of uh, situations where you'd want to know, has this person been drinking recently, even though they're completely sober now on their alcohol level? You can think of, you know, accident investigation where someone 
may have been in an accident and went to the hospital and the investigators didn't show up till the next day and they wanted to know was he driving the bus or whatever, uh, intoxicated or the ferry recently that came up in the North City, um, intoxicated. Um, and, or, you know, people who are on the liver transplant list and always show up for clinic looking sober, but they're smart enough to know that, you know, you don't want to drink the day before you show up for clinic sober, but this may be a way of detecting, you know, are they really uh, being completely, you know, uh, alcohol-free before you transplant the liver and risk that they're going to fall back and develop liver disease again. And, and they even remotely address sort of the forensic issue, and now that you have a dead body, um, if the, you don't preserve it correctly, and then you left it sort of sit at room temperature, um, the ferment, fermentation will generate alcohol. But they don't believe that, at least uh, there hasn't been enough studies done to figure out whether or not they'll generate ETS and ETG, which seem to be the most sensitive markers. And of the two, the ETG, I guess, is the one that seems to be present longer, although in this study it looks like at 30 hours, ETS was there in 80% of the samples after this sort of social drinking experiment. I think the third thing, the ratio they were looking for, this uh, uh, serotonin ratio, was sort of interesting. That alcohol has something to do with the serotonin metabolism, but as far as it having any greater utility than either ETG or ETS, didn't seem very likely. Its window of opportunity is much shorter and maybe only a little bit longer than alcohol itself. I, mean, I think one of the things I also found is that there doesn't appear to be really a correlation between uh, either urine levels or serum levels, you know, the, the, actually the concentration and a correlation with the blood alcohol concentration. So you can't necessarily use it as a marker for, you know, how drunk a person really was. Sort of the thing I was sort of like speculating, you know, in my dreams about is um, you know, both of these are depending on these UDP, glucosanol transferase, sulfur transferases, which is, I believe, similar enzymes to what Tylenol goes through. So we, we know with Tylenol toxicity, they sort of exceed their sulfation and their glucuronidation uh, capability, and then they're forced to go down and make napki when we overdose. I wonder if measuring these same enzymes or using these markers in some way, ETG and ETS, for people who present intoxicated with Tylenol, are this going to be predictive of people who do well, who do badly, uh, how well, how much metabolism they're going in one pathway or another? It's like a half a dozen little mini experiments. I think we could like juggle in our brains, and wrap around that if we had access to these markers um, in real time, which we don't. I mean, they're done in NMS. I don't know how much they cost. We can look into that, but um, but they are becoming greater and greater usage. But all of that would be interesting. Is maybe answer the question: Does alcohol really protect? the Tylenol ingestion, or does alcohol promote, uh, essentially bind up those pathways and make, uh, you know, Tylenol go down the toxic pathway more? So, some thoughts to ponder. Uh, let's take this line of reasoning and line of investigation a couple of steps further. Um, we'll hand it over to Pat here, who's going to tell us about two other articles along that same all right, so first article I'm going to talk about is urinary ethyl glucuronide and 5-hydroxy tryptophan uh, levels during human ethanol ingestions in healthy human subjects by Sarkola out of Finland from Alcohol and Alcoholism in 2003. And I got to say, I'm actually fairly entertained and looking forward to my trip to Scandinavia, given where all this research is coming from. You can earn a couple of extra bucks, or at least a free pizza, to sign up for one of these studies while you're there. Sweet is actually really expensive, so I'm actually looking to fund the trip Write write down these guys' names and look them up when you're over there. Yeah. So kind of the point of... Yes. So the point of this article is really they're taking a look at these markers that we've been talking about. And basically, they're trying to determine whether there is any biopersistence or accumulation during repeated dosing of uh, ethanol over the course of a couple of days, or whether this is just a marker of acute ethanol ingestion, or whether you know you can drink five days ago and still have the marker there. Because our patients just come in, and they you know they're just like I'm just drinking tonight, never did it before, kind of thing. Exactly, drinking all week. Yes, or I you know been been, been off for I've been off for. How, how long can you say that they've, they've been clean at this point? So I'm going to kind of skip through the introduction because we've really covered a lot of this. They, uh, they kind of go through the, the things that they're measuring are the ethylglucuronide, ETG, and then they're also uh, doing the serotonin metabolites, the 5-HTOL that we were talking about earlier. 
So uh, what they actually did was they took uh, nine uh, healthy, non-pregnant Caucasian females uh, with uh, age range 19 to 27, with normal plasma GGTs and no reported, uh, really kind of no reported regular alcohol consumption greater than 12 standard drinks in a week, which classified them as light drinkers. Again, making me look forward to my trip to <laughs> uh, So, uh, no alcoholic beverages allowed for one week uh, in the preceding, in the prior to the start of the study. So th this is kind of an interesting uh, decision on their part. So they went with uh, they went with nine women, and they, they apparently had to design this. They were trying to, to reduce the hormonal influence of the menstrual cycle. So they started everything on day fourteen. They talked about what type of contraceptive pills they were on, and they said that there was really nothing. They kind of had to spend an entire paragraph explaining this, but it seems like they could have done it in guys and just. <laughs> really avoided all of these problems. Yes, but these were all personal acquaintances of the authors. But, but, probably, yes. In order to find light drinkers in Scandinavia, yeah. that's probably <laughs> the, the, the volunteer pool they were looking at. So, so they uh, divided the women into two groups, either alcohol or placebo, with four or five subjects in each group. They mixed the alcohol with juice to make an 8% uh, weight volume solution, or placebo. And they ingested the alcohol on morning and evening for eight consecutive days, and then got blood alcohol levels, and then they got uh, urine, spot urine samples for the next uh, eight days. And then they also got urine samples for three days beyond the end of the study to figure out whether there was any bioresistance. Uh, and then they kind of, and then quantified exactly <coughs> what they were coming up with. So if you look at their results, uh, uh, figure one actually seems to kind of define pretty well what, what they did. So uh, basically they measured the uh, uh, ETG levels and they noted that uh, it was detectable in the morning on all of their patients and then including in uh, the majority of their patients it actually kind of dropped off a little bit to about a level of 10 the, uh, the day after their, uh, the day after they stopped drinking, so it actually persisted for an extra day. Uh, the 5-HTOL uh, to uh, serotonin 5-HIA uh, metabolite actually dropped off a day earlier, back, basically back to baseline. So by the day after they were done drinking, the next morning they were essentially back to baseline. And so, uh, so basically, th th that was kind of the majority of their conclusion that they, that they discussed. They basically say that, uh, um, for the most part, these that uh, they, there is increase in ETG and 5-HTOL uh, levels during acute ethanol intake. Uh, there were kind of a lot. There was a lot of variability between subjects, but there, you know, there there appeared to be some bioaccumulation of the uh, ETG. For about a day after the uh, patient stopped drinking, but there was really um, the 5-HTOL didn't persist that long, but there was no bioaccumulation beyond 24 to 30 hours. Is essentially what they what they were saying. So, just because you were drinking a lot a month ago, you shouldn't have any ETG unless you had more uh, timely alcohol consumption. Yeah, so I think it takes it to you know the next level. It's not just a single acute. You get some people in, you get them, let them drink, and then you see how long it lasts. It's basically people drinking relatively steady, uh, although socially for a week, and then they stop drinking and it seems to fall off at the same rate. And again, the serotonin uh, marker metabolite ratio falls off quicker. It seems to be less useful, but the, the ETG, which they didn't use ETS in the study, seems to be useful up to a day or two even later after the, someone stops drinking to prove that they had alcohol intake um, previously. No. <laughs> okay. All right. So the, uh, the second article we have to talk about is actually a moderately amusing article. Uh, this is actually out of Pennsylvania. So uh, from a Journal of Analytical Toxicology, uh, the effect of the use of mouthwash on ETG concentrations in urine by Constantino. Again, this is from NMS in uh, Pennsylvania. So uh, basically, this study sounds like it was done 
because people were uh, coming up with positive ETG um, tests. And, you know, one of the excuses it sounds like that people were starting to use for, ah, I was using mouthwash. That must have been what it was. So uh, what they did was they, uh, and so it's kind of causing a problematic result because these people were having levels that were all over the place and they wanted to know, you know, can this actually, can this cause a problem? So they did, uh, they did kind of two studies here and presented them both. Um, during the first study, they had uh, nine participants that uh, were required to be negative for alcohol and uh, ETG. Their ETG was measured and it was below the level of detection. Each one was given a four-ounce bottle of commercially available Sipacol 12% alcohol um, mouthwash. And then they were instructed to take a, mouth, a mouthful of mouthwash, gargle for 30 seconds, and spit it out. And they repeat this, repeated this until the entire four ounces had been consumed. And it was uh, completed over a 15-minute period. And uh, the hardcore, you know, gargler's. You know, unbelievably are, you, fresh mouth. Yes. Uh, <laughs> these people are very, very uh, dental health conscious. So... Uh, and then basically they collected urine over about the next 24 hours to see if uh, see if anything was notable. Just do the results from this study. So of 39 post-exposure urine samples that were provided, 22 uh, were greater than the 50 nanogram per milliliter detection limit. Uh, 12 of the 22 that were higher than 50 were greater than 100. Five of the 22 were greater than 200, and three of the 22 were greater than 250, and one person apparently swallowed all the mouthwash and uh, had a level greater than 300. <laughs> yeah, so, um, and basically the first time ETG appeared in a urine sample was about an hour and a half after, and afterwards and all peaks were within uh, 12 hours and 15 minutes. So, uh, study number two they did. Had and interesting, none of them had alcohol in their system, in their mm -hmm. urine at least. Right. So, so something happens there. Okay. Yeah, so, it actually, so some of it probably is absorbed and metabolized. Mm -hmm. uh, so, second study, 11 participants, uh, basically all the same, same study population, plus two from the, from the prior group. They uh, basically got to gargle with, uh, mouth, with the same mouthwash, 12% alcohol mouthwash, uh, after each meal, three times a day for five days, and then they also collected their uh, their urine. And so, predose, no no one had alcohol or ETG uh, detected. Uh, it was ETG was not detected in any samples on day one. Sixteen of the fifty-five uh, submitted samples contained ETG greater than fifty. And uh, all of these over the course of the study, and all of them were less than 120. Uh, and they also actually analyzed the mouthwash for ETG, and it was below the detectable limit. So they weren't they weren't so these people were actually absorbing and creating ETG. So uh, what does that mean besides potentially that we need to teach these patients to gargle slightly better? Uh, I, th I think really what what it means is that your levels can you actually can get a detectable level of uh, ETG with it um, with with mouthwash. However, if you look at Table Three, they have all the positive uh, routine samples that were submitted to NMS for uh, testing, and if you look at them, uh, the laboratory cutoff was 250, which is actually higher than the large majority of the levels that they had, and there were a lot of people that were, there were, there were their, their levels started 250 and go up to greater than 100,000. So I think that, that those are most likely ethanol consumption. Um, and it seems like you can get a detectable level of up to 300 with, uh, with mouthwash. But it seems like if you start to get levels significantly higher than that, then you're probably not covered by the, even the very aggressive uh, gargling uh, protocol here. Yeah, no, I think it's actually of all the articles, probably is probably one of the more important ones because when people are going to say, well, well, I, the reasons that you're finding this in my system was I, I gargle every day or I had some, you know, you know, ant shape and had alcohol in it and put it on my face. Obviously, that wasn't tested. But the reality is, is they established a standard 
number above which it seems inconsistent by at least this pilot study of 10 people and 9 people and 11 people. Um, that makes sense. <coughs> if, you're, if you're above 250 um, nanograms per milliliter, it certainly suggested that you had something to drink in the last 24 hours. And if you're above 500, um, it seems almost certain that you had something to drink in the last 24 hours, um, at least, and really can't just say, I was rinsing my mouth out mouthwash. Um, but, you know, to be fair, the flip side of that is if you can gargle with enough mouthwash to not have any alcohol in your system, yet be positive for this very sensitive biomarker for, for alcohol use. So we have to be a little bit careful in how we interpret some of the lower levels um, for this for this study. Um, just a couple of other notes on how they did things, because we skipped over that. Is really to do all these tests, you need a lot of laboratory equipment because the alcohol content seems to always be done by headspace gas chromatography, which is not how it's typically done in most labs. They usually do an enzymatic process with lactate dehydrogenase or some other enzyme linked assay for alcohol in most ER labs. Most of the ED, ETG, and ETS samples were done by uh, negative ion electrospray liquid chromatography mass spectroscopy, LCMS method, and the other one was done, the serotonins by gas chromatography mass spec, which is more generally available. So these tests are not going to be generally available in most hospital labs, which tend to use these enzyme-linked assays or these other assays for determining alcohol levels. So in general, these will be sent out tests if we already get them, um, uh, but they're not that exotic that they're unavailable, and they're certainly used now for a variety of forensic purposes, and I can potentially see reasons why we might want them in certain instances. Um, it's possible child abuse, neglect, driving accidents, people who claim that they really never, 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 ever had a drink, and yet we're suspicious that that is indeed not true. So some new um, things to, uh, to take into consideration when considering the metabolism of alcohol through these minor pathways that we now have the ability to, to measure more accurately. There's one more. Mm -hmm. The fatty acid ethylesterase, which mm -hmm. is the esterification of free fatty acids with alcohol in the body, and it persists long after the alcohol is gone in the tissues and adipose tissue, and most importantly, the meconium. So meconium testings will test for the latter half of pregnancy and can pick up these uh, fatty acid ethyl esters and uh, sort of correlate that with maternal alcohol consumption and fetal alcohol syndrome. And I don't have any other details on well, I don't know if it's been correlated with fetal alcohol syndrome, yet, but it can detect maternal maternal alcohol, alcohol consumption. Yeah. yeah. Is that what they're using here on the mother baby unit? To um, are they doing it routinely? Yeah. We don't know. Okay, interesting. Instead of Xanax, actually. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Any other thoughts? Go to Scandinavia. Uh, so go to Scandinavia, enroll in a lot of studies, come home, and you got all your writing for the next year set uh, for you. We'll have our international tox fellow um, set and ready. So there we have our journal club for June of 2008. Thanks for listening.